Well, I invite you to open your personal copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 9, Gospel of Luke chapter 9. Two weeks ago, as we were looking at Luke 9, we came across some hard words of Jesus. He said in chapter 9, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. He boldly stated that however people respond to his words will determine the eternal destiny of their souls. He promised that there would be a day that he would return to judge all those who deny him in this life. And so as we heard Christ's call to discipleship, we were challenged to look at our own discipleship. Have we completely surrendered to Jesus? Does he own all of our lives? Or is he just an add-on to a life centered on ourselves? In addition to thinking about our discipleship, Jesus' words caused his disciples in that day and us in our own to think about suffering. Because Jesus promised that if you were to follow after him, that there would be a price that would need to be paid. He didn't promise that following him would be a comfortable, easy road. He said it might cost you your life. In fact, he revealed in verses 21 and 22 that he himself was on a path that would lead to suffering and to death. And therefore, he said, if you would come after me, you too will experience suffering and maybe death. And so in light of everything Jesus said about this high cost of discipleship, we're left asking a number of questions. Is it truly worth it to follow Jesus? Is Jesus worth following? Should I give all that I have in order to gain Christ? Do I really gain much if he's all that I get? Am I really going to gain if I give all to him? And if I give all to Christ, will I ultimately, in the end, lose or gain? Will Jesus really win in the end? Because here he says he's on his way to suffering and to death. That does not look like winning to me. That looks like we're on the losing team. Well, the passage that is before us this morning will answer some of these questions for us and for Jesus' disciples in that day. It's going to help us to see that Jesus' end is not defeat but victory. It shows that Jesus is not just some pompous, self-appointed dreamer, but that he is truly God-appointed king of the world. And so in this passage, in conjunction with what we looked at two weeks ago, we're going to see that it calls us to be disciples of Jesus, to give everything that we have to follow him. But before we launch into it, I want to read the, our verses before us, and I want us to get some context as we flow into our passage. And so we're going to begin reading in verse 18. Verse 18. Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. It says, Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? 
And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, and when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. This morning, we're going to look specifically at verses 28 through 36. And we're going to see that these verses uh, call us to give everything to follow Jesus. And it does this by presenting three qualities of Jesus that we cannot miss from these verses. Let's look at the first quality of Jesus, his dazzling glory. His dazzling glory, verses 28 and 29. Luke sets up this scene in verse 28 by saying that it took place about eight days after these sayings. Matthew and Mark say it was six days. So what was it? Six days, eight days, can't be both. Well, I believe it can be reconciled by thinking about two different ways that one might reckon days. If you think about a half day on one side, six full days, and a half day on the other, you have a total of eight days that are included, but there's six whole days that are in between. And so the different gospel writers could be calculating the days in different ways, one including the half days and others including only the full days. Now, Luke is the only gospel writer to make the connection in introducing the transfiguration with the words that came before. Matthew and Mark have the events in the same order so that you have Jesus' call to discipleship and then the transfiguration, but only Luke mentions that these were eight days after 
after these sayings. In other words, Luke is trying to say, let's remember what he just said as we step into this event. And this, Luke doesn't want us to forget the call to discipleship, the call to take up a cross daily to deny ourselves. This transfiguration is connected to Jesus' call to discipleship. It answers the lingering questions the disciples have. But it not only answers questions, but it fulfills a prophecy. Notice in verse 27, Jesus had said that there were some standing there among his disciples who would not die, would not taste death until they would see the kingdom of God. This prediction was in connection with his statement in verse 26 where he says that he would return in his glory, in the glory of the Father and his holy angels. This is talking about when he would return to set up his kingdom. So he says, I will return in glory, but there's some here that's actually going to see a preview of that glory. And then we go to verse 28 in this event of the transfiguration. Do you see this progression? All of these references, uh, the returning glory, the, the kingdom of God, verse 27, and then the event of the transfiguration are all talking about the establishment of the kingdom. They speak about a glory that Jesus will have when he returns in that future day, as he mentioned in verse 26. Now remember that the, the disciples are common, everyday Jewish men in the first century. They were expecting a Messiah for sure. They're, all of Israel was praying and waiting and expecting for this Messiah to come, but they had a very political and military bent into that expectation. They wanted to see a military deliverer who would come in and root out Rome from their land. In fact, you know, earlier in this chapter, we had the feeding of the 5,000. In John's account of the five, feeding of the 5,000, in John chapter 6, at the end of that event, after Jesus fed all of these people, they rush forward to crown him king. They believe he's that deliverer, but not in the way of, 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 true, of true repentance and faith, but in the way that, hey, this guy is powerful. He might be able to help us overthrow Rome. Jesus goes, no, that's not the, the kind of Messiah that I am, at least not in this first coming. And so the disciples still assume that Jesus is this wonder-working Messiah that they've seen, but they believe that he's gathering crowds together, and one day he's going to overthrow Israel's enemies. He's going to break out into a glorious campaign. But remember, Jesus has just told them that what's, what's next on his agenda? What's next in terms of the plans for Jesus' life? Is it glory? Is it military victory? No, he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He told them that the divine order of things was cross and then a crown, was suffering and then glory. Because he said, verse 26, that glory is going to come when he returns. And now the disciples must live in this in-between time. They must suffer along with Jesus. They must possibly even lose their lives for him. This must have been incredibly confusing for these men. How can the great Messiah be slain? How can the greater son of David experience defeat? How can God's chosen one be conquered? But Jesus promises a preview of the kingdom in order to help their faith, 
to say, listen, yes, I am going to the cross. Yes, suffering is next on the divine agenda, but that doesn't mean that there won't be a kingdom. That doesn't mean that there won't be a day of great glory and victory. It will come. In fact, let me give you a little preview of it. So Jesus leads three men, verse 28, it says, up onto the mountain to pray. Luke is the only gospel writer to mention that they went up to pray. And this doesn't surprise us because Luke, up to this point, has also mentioned several instances of Jesus praying that other gospel writers don't mention. Before Peter's great confession in verse 18 of this chapter, before he chose his disciples in chapter 6, and here, before the transfiguration, he's praying. Now, we don't know exactly what mountain this is. Church history says that it was Mount Tabor in Galilee. Doesn't seem like that would be the case. There was a Roman garrison that was on top, and so it doesn't seem like a very private place uh, to, uh, it's for all this to take place. And so uh, it seems that based upon the chronology in Matthew chapter 16 and 17, that this took place around Caesarea Philippi, which was in the northeast of Israel around Mount Hermon. Now verse 32, just to skip ahead, notice, it says, Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. I think that this event took place in the evening, took place at night. They do an evening hike. They climb up this mountain. They get to the top, and the disciples are like, all right, long day. I'm done hiking, late, late in the day hike. And Jesus sets off to praying, and they set off to sleeping. And so they nod off, and Jesus is praying. And that's then what, what we see in verse 29. As he was praying, look what happens. A miraculous transformation. It says, The appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. These two changes. First, his face. The appearance of his face was altered. Matthew and Mark say that his face shone like the sun. I mean, light was emanating from his face. This wasn't just that he had like this spotlight on him. It was he was emanating light from him. And not just his face, but it says his clothing as well. His clothing became dazzling white. The word used here in Luke is, is unique. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament, and it describes a flash of lightning. His clothes were white like a flash of lightning. I mean, it was blinding. Mark says that, his clothes were so white, whiter than any, any, any person could, could bleach them. Now the shining, the glowing of a face on top of a mountain is meant to clue a biblical reader to an event in Israel's past. And maybe you've thought of it already. A great event in Israel's history. Back in the book of Exodus, God went up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law. And you remember, he came down with his face glowing, having met with God. He communed with God. And his face was shining. But note this. Moses' face shone like the moon reflects the sun. It wasn't his own light. He was simply reflecting the glory of God that he had seen. But Jesus' face, on this mount of transfiguration, it shone from within. It was his own inherent glory that was bursting forth, and it was overpowering. And this glory couldn't be covered up. Moses hid his face with a veil to protect it from the people, but even Jesus' clothes here were shining. Good luck! Say if he pulled his little uh, tunic up over his face, it wouldn't help. His, his, his clothes were shining, like a flash of lightning. 
Luke says. And so Jesus was shining in unparalleled brilliance. Now the point we need to realize, and it's obvious, is that no other human being has shined like this or ever will have this kind of glory. Jesus is in a class by himself. No human compares with this spectacular majesty or glory. And so, again, tied into what Jesus said earlier about following him, we need to ask, who are we devoting our lives to? Are we devoting our lives to some other human, some other philosophy, or are we devoting ourselves to the majestic, glorious Son of God, the only one who has glory radiating from him? Do you live for Christ? Do you give yourself all for this one who has such great, magnificent glory? Why can his followers endure suffering in this life? Because we know that our Lord and Master is the one who will return in glory to save. We see this glory, this preview of what it will be in that final day when he comes to come back to this earth and all the earth sees him in that great glory and every knee will bow when he will shine with a brilliance that will fill his followers with joy and fill his enemies with dread. So why should we accept Jesus' call to self-denial, self-sacrifice, and daily suffering? Because Jesus is glorious. Because he's unlike anyone else. And because he's glorious, he will share that glory with those who follow him. We know that we can experience loss in this life. But Jesus says we'll ultimately gain in the next. So the first quality of Jesus we see in this text that should motivate our discipleship is his dazzling glory. The second quality of Jesus that we see that should motivate our discipleship is his daring mission. Verses 30 and 31, his daring mission. Verse 30 introduces us to Jesus' visitors. Look in verse 30, it says, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Verse 31 says they appeared with him who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. So they had some glory. They had some shining. There was something unique about them. They, they came from heaven to visit with Jesus, and yet their glory does not surpass that of Jesus. Jesus is unique and is, is far superior to these two great men of Israel's past. Notice with Moses, we have another reference to Mount Sinai. We have another reference back to the great event in Israel's history. And there's going to be more references to that throughout this text. But we need to ask, why Moses and Elijah? Why not David? Why not Abraham? Why not someone else? Why is it Moses and Elijah? Now, most scholars will say that Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, and therefore together they say that by their appearance it shows that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. And there's a sense in which that is true. Jesus is the fulfillment of all Old Testament expectation and prophecies. But I don't think that that captures the whole of what's going on. For one, it doesn't make sense to me why Elijah would be considered the representative of all the prophets. He was certainly a great prophet, but there's others who are identified in the scriptures as representative of the prophets, such as Samuel, but not Elijah. Why him? Well, I think that Moses appears because he was the great leader and prophet of Israel. In this role as prophet and leader, he typified the Messiah. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, 
Moses wrote that there would be a prophet who would be raised up amongst Israel that would be like Moses. And by Moses appearing here on the mountain, he's making this connection that Jesus represents a new Moses who will lead his people to God in a new way. So Moses connects with the past but says Jesus is something unique and different. Elijah, on the other hand, represented the hope of the great age of the last days. It was eschatological. It was the latter days that Elijah was associated with. Malachi chapter 4 prophesied that Elijah would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And this is how references to Elijah are used in the New Testament. They always refer to the end times or preparing the way for the Messiah. And so therefore, Moses looks back to the Exodus and Elijah looks forward to the fulfillment of promise in the last days. Jesus is greater than both these men. Jesus is like a prophet, is like Moses, but is greater than Moses. Elijah is the prophet who prepares the way for the Messiah in the last days, and Jesus is that Messiah. But these men don't just show up for a photo op. They're not just here to hang out. They're having a conversation, and we get to at least get a summary of what they're talking about. Look at it in verse 31. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They spoke of his departure. The word departure there in the Greek is literally exodus. It's the word exodus. This word is used elsewhere to refer to death. Peter uses it that way in 2 Peter 1, verse 15, to speak of his departure, meaning his, his leaving of the earth, his death. And so at the most basic level, Jesus and these men are speaking about Jesus' death that, upon the cross. But I think there may be more intended in this word than simply death. He could have said to speak of his death, but instead they use Exodus. And again, there's already been so many allusions to Mount Sinai, to Moses, to that past time of Israel's history, and there's going to be more. That I think there's something significant about this. And Luke is the only one who records what this conversation was. And so there's a broader view, I believe, in what Jesus is seeking to accomplish. No doubt the cross is central to their discussion. The cross is crucial to everything Jesus would do. But I believe it includes his resurrection. It includes his ascension into heaven. And it includes his returning to earth in his second coming. Because remember, the second coming, the return of Christ, is what got us to this point, right? Verse 26, he promised that, that he would return. He would return the gl his glory and the glory of the Father and the glory of the angels. And so in making that prediction, he then leads into this transfiguration. And so the second coming, the return in glory is here. So I think this exodus about which they spoke was about the necessity of Jesus, Jesus dying, but also about his subsequent victory. Death was not going to be the end. If he was going to lead a new exodus, a new people, a uh, lead them in deliverance out of sin, it would have to result in ultimate victory, not just in destroying the enemy. And we know that this deliverance was purchased at the cross. That even though it was purchased at the cross, it'll be finally accomplished in the latter days. There is a salvation to be revealed in the last time, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Salvation to be revealed in the last time. Friends, are we saved through faith? Yes. 
Put your bottom dollar on it. Believe it. We have salvation today. But we still have sin with us, do we not? We still experience suffering. We long for ultimate and complete salvation. And that is what is coming. And that is, I believe, included in this full exodus that Jesus will accomplish. And so Jesus talks about this with Moses and Elijah. Friends, this is our Savior who is prepared to go to the cross for his people. He was deserving of all the glory in the world. He's the most glorious one. And yet he is set on the mission for which he was determined. Notice how his death is spoken of. Look at the last phrase of verse 31. His departure spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Not what was about to happen to him. Notice, he's going to accomplish something. He's going to fulfill something. In other words, he's the actor of the verb. He's bringing about this thing. He's in control. He's in the driver's seat. He's not a victim. He is marching forward with the mission that the Father has given him. And in Jerusalem, he is going to fulfill all the prophecies about him. He will accomplish his exodus. He will accomplish his great work of deliverance. At the cross, he will be put to death by the religious leaders of the nation. And yet in that death, God accepted the sacrifice for guilty sinners. In other words, what would Jesus accomplish in Jerusalem? He accomplished salvation. And folks, the wonderful news is that this salvation that Jesus accomplished, that was future at the time of this, this writing, future at the time of this event, is today been purchased. That all today who place their faith in Christ are able to have the salvation that he accomplished. We are able to have deliverance, salvation from our sin, salvation from the wrath that we deserve. Because every one of us are deserving of eternal wrath for our rebellion against a holy God. And yet, that very God who is just to punish every single sinner is the very God that put forth his son, did not spare his son, but displayed his grace that all would be able to put their faith in him and find salvation from that very wrath that he deserves to pour out. Do you see the justice and the grace of God? That he poured out his wrath upon his son so that all those who place their faith in him are able to receive salvation to be able to be saved. But friends, this salvation is not automatic. You can't go, oh, that's nice that Jesus did that and go on your way. No, to receive this salvation, we must repent of our sin. We must confess the wickedness of trying to live life our own way without God. And then we must place our faith fully in Christ, believing that his sacrifice was sufficient, believing that it was enough, believing that God's wrath was satisfied and that we have full acceptance because we are in Christ. Repentance and faith is all that it takes. We give up everything to come to Christ, but in the end we gain it all. Church, in this you see that we have a Savior who boldly went to the cross for us. 
and he's the one worthy of all our worship. He's worthy of all the glory. He daringly went to Jerusalem to accomplish our salvation. And so Jesus is worth following. He is worth giving our lives to. So we must follow Jesus because of his dazzling glory, because of his daring mission, and third and finally, his divine affirmation. The third quality we see that's to motivate our discipleship is his divine affirmation, verses 32 through 36. Verse 32, we catch up to the three sleeping stooges. Jesus brought these guys up on the mountain with him, remember? I mean, we kind of lost sight of them in the midst of the glory and Moses and Elijah and all that. But they're still over there rubbing the sleep out of their eyes. It says they became heavy with sleep, verse 32. And, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men assumed with them. I mean, I, who was the first guy to wake up? You know, James, he's like, slapping the other guys. You know, wake up. Look at the, you know, can't even talk. Just, just hitting them. And they are dumbfounded. Now, why, how did they recognize Moses and Elijah? This wasn't the age of digital photography, of pictorial encyclopedias, of uh, remembering, you know, where they could remember what people looked like. But they looked up, and somehow, I mean, maybe they had name tags. Uh, maybe they, they overheard the conversation enough to pick up this was Moses and Elijah. We don't know, but somehow they knew who this was. And it's right as they're leaving, verse 33... As the men were parting from him, Jesus, Peter speaks up. Peter wants this party to keep going. He's like, sorry, we missed the first part, but can we keep this going? Uh, and he just, he says something. He blurts it out. He says, Master, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, Luke notes that he doesn't know, Peter didn't know what he was saying. I think, better translate, he didn't recognize what he was saying. He didn't recognize the words that were coming out. He just kind of, the first thing that came to mind, he blurted out. Now, it's true that there was something that was, that was out of place here, but the mention of booths and tents is not all that out of place because in Zechariah chapter 14, it talks about in the millennial kingdom that the feast of booths would be uh, celebrated again. In fact, nations would be judged if they don't celebrate the feast of booths, and so the feast of booths has a very prominent place in the kingdom. So Peter wakes up, and realizes, holy cow, we're in the kingdom. And he says, let's build some booths to celebrate the Feast of Booths. Again, it's the first thing that kind of comes out of his mind. And yet, he was, even though he might have been right about the Feast of Booths, he was wrong about the timing of the kingdom. This was just a preview. This was not going to last. The suffering had to come first before the crown. But as Peter's blubbering out this comment about tents, it says, Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. On the mountain on which they're standing, a cloud becomes enshrouded. You know, he's saying, and one for you, and one for Elijah, and one for Moses. Just realizing as this cloud comes and hangs over the mountain. 
And again, the allusions to Mount Sinai and Moses continue. The, in the Old Testament, the cloud represented the presence of God. And remember, it would come down on top of Mount Sinai while Moses was up there and meeting with God. It would also come down and cover the tabernacle. And in fact, the word here, overshadowed, is the same Greek word used in the trans, Greek translation of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 40, verse 35, to describe the glory of the Lord overshadowing the tabernacle. This presence came and overshadowed the mountain. God showed up. God arrived. And understandably, the disciples are freaked out. <laughs> they, a cloud came and overshadowed them, verse 34, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. It says they were absolutely terrified. Because you see, for sinful man to enter the presence of, of a holy God is always a terrifying thing. But God shows up for a specific reason. He wants to set the record straight about his son. And Luke has been, is, 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 has been preparing us for this answer. Chapter 8, verse 25, after the calming of the storm, the disciples ask the question, who then is this? That even the winds, and uh, he commands even winds and water, and they obey him. They ask, who is this? Chapter 9, verse 9, Herod asks, who is this about whom we hear such things? Verse 18, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do the crowds say that I am? And then he turns and asks them, Who do you say that I am? You see, this question has been building in the text. Who is Jesus? Who is, what is his identity? And we've gotten answers, and even Peter's answer in verse 20 was accurate, but God the Father shows up to give a full and complete answer to that question. This is the final and definitive answer from heaven. Now, we know this isn't the first time that God the Father spoke from heaven. Chapter 3, at his baptism, God the Father spoke as well. But in that event, he spoke to Jesus. He says, you are my son. It's all in the second person. Here is the third person, and therefore he's directing these comments to the disciples and by implication to us and all who read this text. Who is Jesus? Look at what the God the Father says. Verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. A bold declaration, an intimate declaration. This is my son. A reference to the Messiah being the son of God in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And this indicates Jesus as God's unique and special son. God also identifies him here as the chosen one, my chosen one. A reference to Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 1, where the Messiah is spoken of as the chosen one of God. In other words, the Father here is saying that Jesus fulfills all that was spoken about the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of Israel. He is the one you don't need to look for another. He is my son. Disciples need to be fully convinced that Jesus is indeed the divine son of God. But notice Jesus also gives a command. Not only does he have a declaration, but he gives a command. In the last phrase of verse 35, he says, listen to him. Now, not only is this a command, but it's also another way for, Jesus, or for the Father to identify Jesus. This picks up what we talked about earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where Moses predicted that there would come a prophet just like me. And Moses says, when that prophet arrives, listen to him. 
So God the Father comes. Moses is on the mountain. The glory covers the mountain. And God the Father says, listen to him. The Father is saying, Jesus is that prophet like Moses. Listen to him. Is Jesus worth following? He's the only one who's ever received the affirmation from heaven in this way. God the Father himself identified him as the chosen son. And God has called each one of us to listen to his son. We cannot overlook this command from heaven, friends, that we must listen to Christ. You must listen to Jesus Christ for your life. How do we hear his words? We hear them in the Bible. Colossians 3.16 calls it the word of Christ. He is the incarnate word of God. And we must listen to him. Unfortunately, too many people sit in churches every week and they hear the words of Christ, but they do not listen to them. You see, there's a difference. We know this with our children, right? Our children hear our words, but do they listen to our words? There's a difference between hearing them and understanding them and taking them to heart and obeying them. And so I ask you, do you listen to Jesus? Do you obey him? Are you, is your life submitted to him? There are consequences with what you do with Jesus' words. Remember what he said in verse 26, if you're ashamed of his words, therefore denying his words in this life, he will deny you, be ashamed of you in that future day. There are real, future, eternal consequences to what you do with Jesus' words in the here and now. God is calling the one true and living God, the only true God. Everything else is, is a figment of man's imagination. The only true God has spoken from heaven and has told us to listen to his son. Friends, Jesus is superior to every other philosophical system. He's superior to every other religion man has concocted. He's superior to every ideology and worldview. No other human has heaven's endorsement. No other human should be listened to like Jesus. And therefore, we need to evaluate everything according to Christ. All that we hear in our culture today must be held up against Christ. Are we listening to him first and foremost? Are the, the beliefs of our day, are they consistent with Christ? Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Why? For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. No one else is worth listening to. We must listen to Jesus on just as his disciples needed to. I can't imagine the terror the disciples must have experienced that night. Not only had a bright cloud enveloped them, but God himself spoke to them. It was an event they would never forget, but it was an event that they wouldn't fully understand until later after the resurrection. It says, verse 36, and when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. The cloud went away, the people went, the two men went away, everything was back to normal. And Luke says that they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. I, I just wanted to look on their face when they got back to the rest of the disciples. The other nine are like, so what happened? And they didn't say anything. They presumably were potentially speechless. We know from the other gospels, Jesus commanded them not to tell anybody. 
They were in such shock. Is Jesus worth following? Is it worth denying yourself, taking up your cross daily, and potentially losing your life for Jesus? Friends, we see in this passage that Jesus is unsurpassed. He alone has the glory of God. He alone will have the power and authority when he returns. He alone will determine who is on the right side when history ends. He's unsurpassed. He's the glorious one because he's also the crucified one. He's the beloved chosen one. And he will one day return to save those who follow him and to judge those who reject him. The choice is up to you what you will do with his words. Will you listen to him? Or will you harden your hearts, turn away from him, seeking to live your own life apart from him? Friends, that might look like the winning strategy now. That might look like the good life now as this world defines it. But why we need the word of God and why we need passages like this is to give us an eternal perspective. What is truly coming? What are the consequences of our choices in the here and now? What are the consequences of how we live? We must think about the end game. Not think about some future generation's opinion of us. We must think about God's opinion of us. Are we going to follow Christ? I want to end this morning by giving one final point of application as it relates to my brother Luke, whom we are sending out today. Luke, as you go, as we all saw and heard from your sermon last week, keep this Christ central in your ministry. Keep his glory central in your preaching. Keep his cross central in your heart. There is no one more worthy of your life and your ministry being spent for. Give yourself to him fully. Call your people to live and to die for this Christ. And may the resounding note of your ministry be Christ, Christ, Christ. And we know that will be. We've seen you that be the resounding note of your ministry here. All praise to him. And so we know you are unequal to the task in your flesh. But God's spirit will empower you to remain faithful to Christ and to his word. And to that end, we pray. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come humbly before you. We are astounded that we are able to know your son. This one who is of great, magnificent majesty and glory. That we are in him. That we are united to him by faith. And that faith is but a gift. We didn't do anything. You did it all. And we look forward with hope that day when Christ will return. And our salvation will be revealed. And the final grace will be revealed. Oh, Father, I pray that you would keep us faithful to this Christ. That you would help us to hear and to heed the call to discipleship. To not think about ourselves, 
our reputations, our comfort, our possessions. Oh, Father, may we give it all up for Christ. Please, may this vision of Jesus be planted upon our souls in a day and age that doesn't want us to think about the spiritual, think about the eternal, think about the divine. May your word be stamped upon our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.